0: Ave, and welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Shakespearean student. Well, the Ides of March are past, and uh, we just went through what I like to call Friends Romans Countrymen Day, which is to say the day where in 45 BC, Marcus Brutus and Antony themselves presided over a funeral for Caesar, and... Anthony's speech whipped the crowd into a frenzy, forcing Brutus to go on the run. This is why I traditionally use March as my month to uh, talk about Shakespeare's Roman plays, especially Julius Caesar, and what better way to do that than with a podcast honoring the noblest Roman of them all, Marcus Brutus. This will not be an in-depth character analysis. I won't go into every scene and speech of Brutus's. My goal is to look at the history and the actions of Brutus in the play to show why he is such an amazing and ambiguous character. I would further argue that for the first half of the play, Brutus is primarily an audience cipher, which is to say a character whose personality is secondary to being sort of a blank slate that the audience can project their own feelings and thoughts on I think Shakespeare does this for the purpose of making us ponder the righteousness of political assassination and to question what would we do in this circumstance Marcus Junius Brutus was born in 85 BC. Shakespeare's source for the play, Plutarch's Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, mentions that his desire to kill Caesar might have been tied to his family. Brutus' ancestor was Lucius Junius Brutus, the man who drove out the last king of Rome, Tarquinus Superbus, which Shakespeare dramatizes in his epic poem The Rape of Lucrece. Lucius is Lucrece's sister, and throughout the poem um, Tarquin's tyranny as a king is analogous to his brutal rape of Lucrece, and therefore Lucius was portrayed as a hero and an avenger. This was how seriously the Brutus family took defending the Roman Republic. It was their core family virtue. Brutus' ties to Roman republicanism went even further than that. Brutus' mother was Servilia, half-sister of Caesar's longtime credit, the senator Cato. He even married Cato's daughter, Portia. So you can see that once Caesar starts acting like a king, declaring himself dictator for life, Um, starting to uh, enact major reforms without Senate permission, expanding Roman territories, even uh, staging a triumph for himself where he um, portrays himself as the son of a god, Um, Brutus must have felt a, a tremendous amount of pressure from his family to stay true to his republican ideology. But on the other hand, Servilia was also Caesar's mistress. And Brutus had a, um, a large amount of respect and um, owed Caesar his life. Brutus fought against Caesar um, in the army of Pompey, but they reconciled after the Battle of Pharsalus in 48 BC. Most of those who were taken alive, Caesar incorporated in his legions, and to many men of prominence he granted immunity one of these was brutus who afterwards slew him caesar was distressed we are told when brutus was not to be found in, in the battle of pharsalus but when he brought into his presence but when brutus was brought into his presence safe and sound caesar was pleased beyond measure plutarch the lives of the noble greeks and romans Despite his close ties to Caesar, Brutus chose to betray and assassinate him, so the question remains, why? In Shakespeare's play and in Plutarch, Brutus is persuaded by Cassius Longinus, his brother-in-law and colleague in the Roman Senate. As you may remember in my post on Friends, Romans, Countrymen, there are three basic kinds of persuasive speech, ethos, pathos, and logos, otherwise known as the appeal to authority, the appeal to facts and figures, and the appeal to emotions. Cassius uses all three to convince Brutus to betray Caesar. Now, I might just uh, gloss over this uh, because I want to uh, explore Cassius as a character later. But um, I would like to say there are two major arguments that Cassius spends more time on than any other. Um, He uses facts to paint a picture of Caesar as a weak and feeble man unworthy of the adulation that he's been given. He tells stories about how um, Caesar had a fever, how he has epilepsy, how he's nearly death, um, how he is uh, a bad swimmer, not as good as uh, Cassius. And then he concludes with, and this man is now become a god. So his argument uh, very simply is, Caesar is weak and frail, gods cannot be weal- weak and frail, so why is Caesar treated like a god? Kings are supposed to be gods on earth. Caesar would make a lousy king. You can see the steps to, of uh, uh, logic behind the argument. Um, this moves Brutus a little bit, but what really cuts to the heart, well, cuts to Brutus's heart, is when he brings up Brutus's family honor. Cassius reminds Brutus of his ancestor Lucius, who we discussed earlier, and how Lucius would rather die, or rather that the devil himself rule in Rome, than seeing a king in Rome again. That is the meaning of Cassius' famous line, you and I have heard our fathers say there was a Brutus once that would brook the eternal devil to keep his state in Rome as easily as a king. So he's saying that he that Lucius Brutus would rather that the devil himself ruled Rome for eternity than have Caesar um, rule as king for one lifetime. <clears throat> this is the end this is the part that really perks up brutus and he finally speaks up this whole time he's been curt cordial but um firmly uh, against the notions that cassius brings out but at the end he he succumbs to his passion just a little bit and says Brutus would rather be a villager than repute himself a son of Rome under the hard conditions that this time is likely to lay upon him. So Cassius realizes he's got him. Um, and Brutus sets about the sober task of helping to organize the conspiracy to kill Caesar. That night, Brutus considers the ramifications of what he's doing it's um in a speech that is often described as the blueprint well it's often described as shakespeare's first great soliloquy i would argue it is the blueprint that shakespeare came back to for a lot of his great soliloquies the speech itself is not all that great It must be by his death. And for my part, I know no personal cause to spurn at him but for the general. He would be crowned. How that might change his nature, that's the question. It is the bright day that brings forth the adder, and that craves weary walking. Crown him? That. And then I grant we put a sting in him, that at his will he may do danger with. The abuse of greatness is when it disjoins remorse from power. And to speak truth of Caesar, I have not known when his, aven- his affection swayed more than his reason, but is a common proof that lowliness is young ambition's ladder, whereto the Climber upward turns his face, but when he once attains the utmost round, he then upon the ladder turns his back, looks in the clouds, scorning the base degrees by which he did ascend. So Caesar may, then lest he may prevent. And since the quarrel will bear no color for the thing he is, fashion it thus, that what he is, augmented, would run to these and these extremities, and therefore think him as a serpent's egg, which hatched would, as his kind, grow mischievous, and kill him in the shell. When I say that this speech is a blueprint for future soliloquies, I say, what I mean is that this play, this speech is a direct predecessor of speeches like to be or not to be, and Macbeth's if it were done soliloquy. Um, All three speakers are talking about murder, but they describe it in very general terms. They can't bring themselves to say either the word murder and the other two, uh, Hamlet and, uh, and Macbeth, will not mention the name of the man who will die. It's interesting that in um, in Brutus and Macbeth, the lines run together. You'll notice that I was uh, kind of sh- uh, uh, rushing through it, um, and that's because the thoughts run on from line to line. So you have to take a breath, breath in the middle of uh, uh, of lines at the uh, punctuation rather than at the ends of lines, which is the norm for Shakespearean actors. Little pro tip there. But um, And I think it's because either Brutus is thinking very fast, which makes sense. He's a politician. He's a very intelligent man. Or it could be that the emotions That he's experiencing is so terrible and his guilt is so intense that he's trying to suppress it It, and it's almost like there's a voice inside that he will not listen to that says this is wrong this man does not deserve to die you are doing a horrible thing and this is going to fail um and he responds by saying think of Caesar as a serpent's egg that by his very nature is dangerous and therefore he must be destroyed before he can fulfill his what was going to be what was inevitable. And this is part of what I mean when I say that Brutus is sort of an audience cipher. The He keeps his personal feelings out of this. The only real impression we get from listening to this speech and from other speeches about the, uh, the assassination is that Brutus is well aware that an assassination is a risky and dangerous thing. And, of course, killing somebody has within it horrible consequences like his father Lucius before him, like the Harati um, who uh, swore an oath to uh, uh, defend Rome uh, in single combat. Uh, like Romulus and Remus themselves. If he's willing to kill, he is also willing to die. We don't see um, but we don't see any personal reasons nor do we really get Caesar's perspective. It's completely ambiguous whether Brutus is right or wrong that Caesar wanted to become king or not. But after these two soliloquies, the one I've quoted and another one that I'm not quoting here, but you can look up for yourself, Brutus becomes more active in the play. He throws himself into the role of head conspirator. He is charismatic. He leads the conspiracy and he feels like more of a real character, especially in moments like in the part where Cassius wants everybody to swear an oath. And Brutus, in in an attempt to form camaraderie, says that the cause does not need an oath. In a way, these men are like two sides of the same coin. Cassius is fiery but pragmatic, while Brutus is stoic but idealistic. Again, we see who Brutus is mainly by who he is not, because he's constantly around men who are the opposite of him. It's like a tragedy in itself. These men weren't melded into one man with Brutus' heart and Cassius' mind. One moment that I think perfectly encapsulates the ambiguity of Brutus's actions is the moment where he's visited by Caesar's ghost. In other tragedies like Macbeth and Richard III, um, ghosts um, who visit the people that kill them, uh, their function is to torment them. Um, The ghost itself is a manifestation of the murderer's guilty conscience. But when Brutus sees Caesar's ghost, he does not follow this trope at all. He isn't horrified. He is not struck by guilt. All he says to Brutus is he says, thou shalt see me at Philippi. And Brutus' response is very flat. He says, then I shall see thee at Philippi. And then the ghost disappears. Brutus expresses a wish that it had stayed longer. And that's it. According to John Langdon, Many Elizabethan ghosts serve as a shorthand to indicate that the play's denouement is on its way, and Brutus seems aware of this. He knows that if he sees a ghost, he's likely to be one soon. Yet the reality of his impending death doesn't change Brutus. He doesn't express remorse like Richard III or hopelessness like Macbeth. The passive embrace of fate when Brutus says, "Thou, sh- I shall see thee at Philippi, so It's sort of like Hamlet's um, not-a-wit-we-defy augury. Augury is a term that ancient Romans used to describe telling the future. Um, they would sacrifice birds and try to use their bodies in order to uh, tell the future. In fact, there is an augury that is taken um, right before um, Caesar's death. Uh, where they sacrifice, say, an animal. I forget exactly if it's a bird or not, but they don't find its heart. The heart is burned clean, to, clean away, which is a very bad omen. But uh, Brutus, when he is confr- confronted with auguries, he merely embraces his fate and expresses no remorse, fear, or sadness. But this also makes it hard to tell if Brutus is indeed a hero or a villain. Though Shakespeare wrote the character of Brutus as ambiguous, over the centuries, many artists and cultures have passed judgment on Brutus. Dante, in his uh, book The Inferno in the 1300s, uh, placed Brutus and Cassius in the lowest circle of hell, along with Judas Iscariot and where they are being forever uh, eaten alive by Satan himself. But, by contrast, during the French Revolution, many statesmen referred to Brutus as a hero for his noble attempt to destroy a corrupt monarchy. And during the, the American Civil War, John Wilkes Booth Exp- expressed a, uh, admiration for Brutus, which he later enacted, he tried to cast himself as a Brutus role. I'll talk about that in, in a later podcast, uh, because the history of America's, uh, America's fascination with Julius Caesar is a, uh, large and, uh, complex and deeply interesting topic. But for now, let me just say that Shakespeare, I think, wrote Brutus ambiguously. He took advantage of his stoicism and his commitment to letting himself be dominated by reason. Except for the scenes where he's masterminding the, uh, the conspiracy and when he's talking to Rome, Brutus seems more like a, a intelligent audience cipher uh, rather than a full character. And I think that that's deliberate. We imagine ourselves and what we would do if we got swept up in a dangerous and unpredictable time. We might, um, and we can project any uh, real emotional uh, reactions on him because he keeps his to himself. So the ultimate question that Shakespeare poses with Brutus is, what would we do if we were forced to act like him.